It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. This week, the Supreme Court tackled a case that could further weaken the landmark Voting Rights Act. All six conservative justices suggested they would back two Arizona ballot restrictions while exploring a possible middle ground on the standard that would apply to future lawsuits. Justice Samuel Alito was one of those expressing concern that any voting law could be vulnerable to attack under Section 2 of the Act. People who are poor and less well-educated on balance, probably will find it more difficult to comply with just about every voting rule than do people who are more affluent and have had the benefit of more education. There was a surprisingly candid answer from the lawyer for Arizona's Republican Party to a question by Justice Amy Coney Barrett. What's the interest of the Arizona RNC here in keeping, say, the uh, out-of-precinct Um, voter ballot disqualification rules on the books? Because it puts us at a competitive disadvantage relative to Democrats. Politics is a zero-sum game. Joining me is elections law expert Richard Brofald, professor at Columbia Law School. Rich, tell us the significance of the Voting Rights Act symbolically and legally. Well, the Voting Rights Act initially dates back to 1965, and it was a landmark effort on the part of the federal government to really finally undo 100 years of serious voting discrimination, effectively kept uh, huge fractions of the black population and other minorities from voting. So it was a major step forward in actually making the right to vote available to everybody. It was a very significant amendment added to it in 1982, and that's really what the argument dealt with, known as Section 2, which basically said that certain kinds of voting rules that have the effect of discriminating against minorities even if they're not clearly intended to do so, can also be challenged and struck down where they have the effect of denying minorities equal opportunity to participate in the political process. What's going on now, and really for the last 10 years or more, is kind of the return of what people call vote denial, the efforts to adopt laws, which although neutral on their face, actually make it harder for people to vote, and in particular make it harder for minorities to vote, things like voter ID. Is one example of this, maybe the one that's gotten the most attention. But there are other mechanisms. And the big question the Supreme Court has not addressed until now is what's the standard of proof? What needs to be shown in order for plaintiffs who are challenging one of these rules to say that this kind of vote denial mechanism, which although fair in its face or neutral on its face, it triggers a violation of Section 2. What did you hear from the justices? There's a lot of concern that the standard adopted by the Ninth Circuit has made it too easy for plaintiffs to bring cases, or more to the point, made it too easy to challenge pretty standard or widespread voting rules and kind of made it too easy for minority plaintiffs 
tune in. I should say that in this case, it was actually not bought by minority groups. It was bought by the Democratic Party. The justices pushed Arizona's lawyer about the dividing line between restrictions that would be lawful and those that wouldn't be. And so he said it was lawful to block voting on Sundays, but not to force people to travel to country clubs to vote. What did you glean from his responses? I think that some of the argument of the challengers, they were going pretty far to make the argument that spatially neutral laws that basically set the procedures for voting simply could not be challenged under Section 2. And I think these examples were designed to sort of push them to say, do you really mean that? Aren't there some situations where, given what the AG of Arizona acknowledged was background demographic considerations, that given those, isn't it the case at least sometimes a law which appears to be neutral on its face? One of the examples that Justice Kagan raised a couple of times was extremely short voting hours so that people who work basically couldn't get to vote. Or again, the locations of polling places, which were going to be very, very far from any minority neighborhoods, that a blanket exclusion of the so-called time, place, and manner rules for voting just would not survive, that that just needed to be untenable. And the question that you heard several of the justices, really both conservative and liberal justices raising, was how do you distinguish between rules that simply, quote unquote, make it inconvenient to vote? and rules that effectively, that seriously burden the right to vote. And that, I think, was kind of one of the questions that was underlying a lot of this. How do you come up with a standard that allows the states to adopt some rules? Because almost any rule is going to make it hard for somebody to vote. If the voting hours are from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m., it's going to be hard for people who want to vote at 10 p.m. How do you distinguish that from rules that operate with the effect of, and maybe even the intent of, making it very hard for particular groups of people, minority voters, to vote. Rich, a lot of people were watching the Chief Justice during these oral arguments, in part because he wrote the majority opinion in Shelby County versus Holder, which significantly cut back Voting Rights Act in 2013. Did you hear anything from him that struck you? I think what we heard from him, and this may be where the court winds up going, is he was unwilling to, to us completely rule out Voting Rights Act coverage as the lawyers of the Republican Party want. Their position was pretty much the courts can't even hear these cases. He seemed unsympathetic to that. On the other hand, he also seemed unsympathetic to the rulings of the courts below on the two particular issues being challenged and maybe therefore coming up with a standard in which the plaintiffs have to prove a lot more than just disparate impact. And he basically, you know, was asking one of the laws that had been challenged was one that prohibited, you know, third parties from collecting and returning absentee ballots, third parties other than family members. In other words, like community groups, voting rights groups, political parties. This is known pejoratively as ballot harvesting. And he basically pointed out that, you know, 15 years ago, a bipartisan commission had said that, you know, this raised possibilities of fraud and coercion. And he basically said, you know, that isn't this kind of rule, the kind of rule which is not inherently discriminatory, but in fact has a good justification for it. So I think he was looking for ways, and Justice Kavanaugh asked similar questions, things which have legitimate justifications or things that are in widespread use. Many states have rules like this. Shouldn't we take that into account in judging whether or not a particular rule violates the Voting Rights Act? Most observers seem to think there is enough support from the conservatives for these voting restrictions. Do you agree with that? And what about the standard that the court uses? 
the Supreme Court is always very hard to predict. I think you're going to see some kind of intermediate standard, but one in which the plaintiffs in this case lose. In other words, they're not going to go as far as the most extreme positions of either the Republican Party lawyer or what had been the position of the Trump administration, which is to say that basically you can't use Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act to challenge these basic rules that govern the voting process. Well, I don't think they're going to go that far. But I do think they're going to use a standard which requires the plaintiffs to prove more, not just that there is a racial disproportion and how that certain rules affect minority voters more than non-minority voters, but that the impact has to be substantial and maybe part of a broader effort to make it harder for minority voters to vote. So, you know, I think a number of justices were looking for what they might consider to be a middle ground of saying, yes, suits like this could go forward, but maybe with a higher standard of proof for plaintiffs. And the question is, how high is that standard going to be? And, and what will that result in? What kinds of voting restrictions would be protected from challenge? Which is important at a time where it seems like a lot of states are moving to adopt more restrictive rules on voting. The Brennan Center says that legislators introduced more than 165 bills this year to restrict voting access. That's more than four times the number from a year ago. So if those are challenged or when those are challenged, the rules that the Supreme Court sets out in this case will be determinative? Will certainly be very significant. Certainly what the Supreme Court does in this case will be extremely important for anybody bringing a challenge based on a racially discriminatory impact. There might be other arguments. Some of these rules could be challenged on, on more pure right to vote grounds or other considerations. But this case will, I think, set the standards for challenging newly restrictive voting rules on grounds of racial discrimination. You know, this is really the Supreme Court's first time looking at how to apply this statute to these kinds of lawsuits since the new wave of restricting voting or tightening up on voting rules began about a dozen years ago. Thanks for being on the show, Rich. That's Professor Richard Brafalt of Columbia Law School. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, can a high school discipline a cheerleader for a profane Snapchat? I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. About 40 judges have announced they'll take senior status or retire since the election, adding to about 50 federal judicial vacancies that existed before the election. With a narrow Democratic majority in the Senate and no 60-vote threshold for judicial nominees, Biden has an opportunity to make an impact on the courts, starting with the Second Circuit, which it now appears he can flip back to a Democratic-appointed majority. Joining me is Professor Carl Tobias of the University of Richmond Law School. Carl, tell us what senior status means for judges and who's taking it. Well, senior status is a form of semi-retirement when judges satisfy the rule of 80. When they're 65 and have 15 years of experience, they can take that status. They usually have a half caseload and they continue to receive the COLAs that 
all federal judges have. And so it's a great opportunity for the judges uh, so because you retain their experience, but the court then gets another active judge. And so that's uh, extremely valuable um, and brings new people into the system and gives the courts more resources, which many of them need. Uh, the most recent uh, one is Judge Peter Hall on the Second Circuit, who last Thursday assumed senior status. And so that's important because he's the third judge on that court who assumed senior status and means that there'll be more people on the court appointed by Democratic presidents than Republican presidents one, Judge Hall is replaced by a Biden appointee. So Biden has an opportunity to flip the court back to a democratically appointed majority, which Trump was able to flip during his time. Explain the importance of the Second Circuit, which is based in Manhattan. Well, it's the business center of certainly the United States and probably the world. There's Wall Street, and there's so much commercial and industry and business that is transacted there, and it gets many other very important cases. I mean, think about some of those involving President Trump and El Chapo and all kinds of international and nationally important cases. And so it's a story court that has a long tradition. Remember, Thurgood Marshall served on that court. Learned Hand served on that court, Henry Friendly, many great judges in the pantheon of federal judges. It's a story court, and people know that. Tell us how many circuit courts Trump flipped. Three. The third, which includes Delaware, uh, New Jersey, uh, and Pennsylvania, and the 11th, which is Alabama, Georgia, and Florida. So when the circuits flipped... Have we seen a difference in the opinions that are coming out of those circuits? Yes, to some extent, and a number of public interest groups and others are tracking those. Probably most striking is in the 11th, because I believe there are six judges, which is a majority on that court, appointed by President Trump. And that made a big difference on the felon franchisement issue that came from Florida. And all the Trump appointees, as well as the chief judge, voted in a way that was advantageous to Trump and probably meant the difference in his ability to capture Florida in the presidential election. And so that's one of the most important examples. But there are a number of others, of course, that the Supreme Court will see, too, that the court is issuing more conservative rulings in certain areas. You only need a majority vote to get an appellate court judge. Does this mean that Biden can put anyone he wants on these courts? No, I don't think so. And you do have a 50-50 split. And there are a number of senators who are relatively moderate. uh, And um, unless you have all 50 of those uh, and the Republicans hold together, uh, then uh, it will be difficult to name people who uh, are outside of the mainstream, if you will. But Biden hasn't said that he intends to nominate people who are outside the mainstream. 
but he has said uh, he is looking for diversity in terms of uh, ethnicity, um, gender, and uh, LGBT people, sexual orientation, uh, but also experiential diversity, saying there may be too many prosecutors and too many uh, big firms and um, other uh, corporate-type attorneys on the um, federal bench. Uh, and so um, the White House counsel sent a letter to senators about sending forward their recommendations and mentioned all of those facets of diversity. And so I think that'll be important. And he also promised to make his first appointment to the Supreme Court a black woman. The Federalist Society was behind the lists of judges for Trump. Who is doing that for Biden, if anyone? Well, also don't forget that Leonard Leo, the executive vice president of the Federalist Society, was Trump's legal advisor through four years at the White House. And he was instrumental, as well as Don McGahn, the first White House counsel, in packing the appeals courts with extremely conservative judges, 54, setting some records in the first and second year. So that's important. I think in this administration, there are other groups like American Constitution Society and Demand Justice and other groups in Washington um, who have been very important and have sent lists, actually, to the White House. But I don't think you will see the same kind of influence from them, even though it will be important to the White House, and I'm sure the White House will consider those lists. But also at the district level, I think we'll see something fairly traditional. The White House counsel asked for three names for each vacancy, and that'd be done swiftly, uh, remembering that in the Obama first year, the election process moves slowly. The White House is moving as quickly as possible and saying within 45 days of an opening, the senator should have three recommendations to the White House. And so I think they will consult both at the appellate and district level although there may be more White House control over the appellate nominees. To go back, there are presently five appellate court vacancies and five future vacancies. And on the district level, 60 present vacancies and 21 or so future vacancies. So there's some opportunities there. How do you know about a future vacancy on an appellate court? The judge will announce We'll send a letter to the president saying, I intend to assume senior status. And then the administrative office of the U.S. courts will post that. And you can see that online. Um, And so that's the way to tell. And they list out, they have a listing of future vacancies. What's the possibility that Joe Biden could flip the circuit courts back that Trump flipped? There's some possibility. It would depend in those two appeals courts, the 3rd and the 11th that we were talking about, uh, on some more judges assuming senior status or retiring, and that hasn't happened yet, and there aren't any present vacancies on either of those courts. But those are possibilities. Um, And there's probably some other courts. For example, uh, Trump appointed 10 people to the Ninth Circuit, Um, which is a large number, but of course there are 29 active judges on that court. One person has said she would take senior status, but there may be others there. Uh, Because I think if you look at senior eligible people, 
people who could take senior status. There are a number of uh, judges on that court, principally whom President Clinton appointed, who could assume senior status. But in order to flip a circuit, you'd need a Republican-appointed judge to take senior status. Do judges on appellate courts wait until a president of their party is in office? Again, remembering that's a pretty crude measure when you're talking about who appointed the person and someone who served for 20 years. um, But people do use that measure, so yes. But we'll see. Um, It depends, and sometimes uh, I don't think that as much of a custom as at the Supreme Court of trying to uh, take senior status or resign in the term of a president of the same party as appointed you. Um, and you you often see that. I mean, for example, Judge Hall was a Republican appointee to the Second Circuit. Uh, and here we are in a Democratic administration. What do you consider a conservative judge? Well, that's a good question. And I think the Federalist Society has been um, vigorously debating that as recently as Friday according to reports from your uh, reporters. Uh, And I think uh, there are a number of ways of defining that, but I think for me and others, talk about ideological conservatism. Uh, And if you think of the culture war cases, for example, abortion and immigration and voting rights and other issues that are very much hot-button issues, I think that's one way to look at it. But what I think this debate in the Federalist Society is about is the notion of originalism and a a conservative view of the Constitution. Uh, And the strain comes in with, as they were debating on Friday, what do you do about the assault uh, insurrection on the Capitol on January 6th? And think about Uh, the Trump appointees who rejected his false allegations of election fraud. And so there's some tension there about, you know, having certain political goals vis-a-vis the judiciary uh, and being true to your principles about originalism, if you will. And that needs to be worked through. And I think the same debate is going on in the Republican Party. And so I think that's what you're seeing. And so those Tensions can't all be resolved, and so we'll see how they all all play out. Besides the Second Circuit, which other circuits might come up as possibilities for Biden to flip? I think the other two I I was talking about because he flipped those two. He also reinforced the size of the uh, Republican majorities in a number of circuits. For example, the fifth, I think he had four or five appointments, three in Texas and the 8th, and the 7th, a number of those he added to the Republican majority, and significantly, which will make it more difficult. I mean, I think Biden would probably need two terms to change a number of those courts. Here's one more thing about the district court. Um, there was a hearing in the House Judiciary Subcommittee about 10 days ago on a judgeship bill which would embody the judicial conference recommendations based on conservative estimates of case and workload, which calls for 65 new district judges and five new Ninth Circuit judges. Uh, And 
almost everybody agreed. There was bipartisan agreement that the courts need the judges to deliver justice. But how, what that'll look like, we'll see. Um, I think something might happen. But the problem is, of course, the party doesn't have the White House won't agree because they feel like they're giving judges to the opposite party. So how big would that make the Ninth Circuit? Well, uh, it would make it large. It would be 33 active judges and then, of course, 20 or so senior judges. Thanks, Carl. That's Professor Carl Tobias of the University of Richmond Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every week, 9 at 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.